Good morning. I'd like you to turn, if you have your Bibles with you, to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. There's a popular game in the church today, and we all play it. It's called Judging Preachers. We all either literally or subconsciously probably have our top ten list of preachers based on the criteria of the size of the church or how many degrees he has after his name or how many books he's written or his preaching style or his popularity with people. Sometimes I think that I ought to give you guys like Olympic judges cards so that as I'm preaching or after I'm preaching you can kind of lift up your card and it says uh, 9.5 8.6, there's a 6.5 by the Russian judge, you know, and you take into account degree of difficulty and size of splash. Well, that game is offensive to God, because it's not our job to evaluate and rank God's servants. And that's the point that Paul makes at the beginning of chapter 4 because the Corinthians were doing just that. Now let me say this. It's clear in the New Testament where a man teaches false doctrine, we are to make a judgment about that. And it's clear in the Bible that where a man is living in sin, we have a right, in fact we have an obligation to discipline that individual. But where preachers are equally pure in doctrine and equally pure in lifestyle, there is no basis for ranking one above another. There's no basis for rating them. There's no basis for saying this man is superior to that man. But that's what was happening in the church at Corinth. And they had preachers who were Peter, Paul, and Apollos. So they were equally pure in doctrine, equally pure in lifestyle. And yet, divisions were growing up. Factions were growing up around each one of them on the basis of preaching style or personality or some other thing. And so Paul writes here in chapter 4 to show the place of the teacher, the preacher, who it is that does the judging and what the basis is for that judgment. Now, as I read these verses, I see a little edginess in Paul's voice. I I see a little frustration in his voice. Look at verse 1. He says, let a man regard us in this manner. And then in verse 3, he says, but to me, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you. And then in verse 5, he says, therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. So it's evident to me that Paul felt like he was being judged by some in the church at Corinth. And so I've I've entitled this passage, How to Kill a Pastor. If you want to destroy a pastor, I see three ways in these five verses. And we'll walk through them together this morning. First way you can kill a pastor is to give him undue exaltation. Just put him up on a pedestal. 
Just give him exalted titles like father, reverend, doctor, most high guru. What does that do? Well, it either feeds his ego, which will lead to his downfall, or it encourages competition and comparison, which leads to division in the church. So Paul tells us the proper way to regard Peter and Apollos and Paul himself and any other preacher in verse 1. Notice what he says. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Here are two titles that are acceptable for a preacher. Number one is a servant of Christ. Now there are several Greek words in the New Testament for servant. One is the word oiketes, which means a household servant. Another is the word doulos, which means a bond slave. Another is diakonos, which means a servant. That's the word from which we get our word, excuse me, deacon. In fact, if you look back at chapter 3 and verse 5, Paul used that word there when he said, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants, diakonos. But the word in chapter 4 and verse 1 is a different Greek word. It's the Greek word huperetes. Two Greek words. Hupo means under. Eretes means a rower. And so this word literally means an under rower. This is the person who would row in a ship on the lowest level of the galley. In a Roman ship, they had three levels of oars. Huperetes were the under rowers. They were the lowest of the servants. They were on the bottom of the ship, having the most menial task that you could have. And Paul says, that's what we are. We are huperetes of Christ. We're under rowers. We're slaves of Christ. Now, you don't rate under rowers, do you? I don't see anybody trading, you know, trading cards of under rowers. And Paul says, if you don't do that, then don't rate and rank us, because that's exactly what we are. In fact, look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16. Paul says, for if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. You know, sometimes we look at preachers and say, my, how much they've given up. How impressive. They could have done this with their life, but they chose to do this thing for God. What does Paul say? Notice the rest of verse 16. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. You know why I preach the gospel? Because if I don't, I'll be in a lot of trouble. That's what Paul's saying. Don't applaud me. I didn't sign up for this. I was on my way to Damascus one day, minding my own business, and God got a hold of me and called me into the ministry, and now, woe is me if I don't preach the gospel. 
And then notice the next verse, verse 17. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. If I was doing this on my own initiative, you might applaud me. But what does he say? But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. I'm a slave. And I just do what my master tells me to do. And if I don't, woe is me. So Paul says the first title you can use for a preacher is an under rower. Now what can we say about an under rower? Well, we can say that they don't know where they're going. Can't we? If there's three levels of oars and you're at the bottom, all you've got is a hole in the side of the ship where your oar goes through and you're rowing all day long. You can't see where you're going. So you have to totally trust the master. Second thing we can say about an under rower is that they have to work together. You ever row in a canoe with somebody else? The key is to be in sync with that other person. And that's the way it was with the under rowers. They usually had a, a fellow at the front who would have a chant or count so that they, got, they did it in sync. Everything they did, they did it they did together. They worked together. And then the third thing I want you to notice is it says, we are under rowers of Christ. We are servants of Christ, which means we're not servants of people. You know, I've fallen into this trap before where I get in my mind that I'm working for you. That's a bad trap to get into. That means I've got a thousand bosses telling me what to do. The reality is, I have one boss. I have one master. And that is Jesus Christ. And my job is not to please people. My job is to please Christ. I love what Paul says in Galatians 1.10. He says, if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. I can't be both. I can't please people and be a bondservant of Christ because I have to put him first and do what he calls me to do, even if it isn't popular with people. So the first title is Servants of Christ, under rowers in the belly of the ship for Jesus Christ. And then there's a second title, and that's at the end of verse 1, Stewards of the Mysteries of God. Now a steward was usually a household slave. It was the person the owner put in charge of his possessions. The word literally means a house manager. If, if some of you go away on a trip, you, you have somebody stay in your house. That's like a steward. They're staying in your house. They've taken care of your house, but they don't own the house. That's a steward. Now in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10... It tells us that we are all stewards of the manifold grace of God. All of us are stewards. God has given us his spirit. He has given us his grace. He has given us spiritual gifts. And we are responsible to take care of those and then to use those to build up the body of Christ. But in this context, Paul is particularly talking about himself and others who are gifted as teachers. And he says we are to regard them as stewards. Now if you've ever been on a ship, you know 
about the ship steward. He doesn't own the ship, he just takes care of things on the ship. If you've been on an airplane, you've had a steward or a stewardess. The stewardess doesn't own the airplane. You don't get on and say, man, this is a nice airplane. What does the stewardess do? She takes care of things that the company owns and she distributes things to the people on the plane. She goes down the aisle. Now, if you fly on the flights I fly on, there isn't much they give you anymore. I used to make fun of the peanuts. Now I wish I had the peanuts. They give you pretzels now. But anyway, she goes down the aisle and distributes things to the people. That's a steward. Now what is it that I as a teacher am to be distributing to you? Well, he says, I'm a steward of the mysteries of God. That word mysteries means things previously hidden which are now revealed. What was previously hidden that Paul and Apollos and Peter and preachers called by God today are distributing to his people? What's the New Testament? It's the gospel. It's the word of God. You see, my job is to take the food out of God's kitchen and put it on the table without messing it up. That's that's all I'm supposed to do. My job as a preacher is to take God's word and deliver it to God's people. I've often used the analogy that I'm I'm a paper boy. I'm not an editor. I don't don't edit the paper, paper. I deliver the paper, and my job is to get it to you without throwing it in a mud puddle or throwing it on the roof. I'm to deliver. That's all I do. And that's the job of a steward. He protects God's things, and he delivers those to God's people. So if you want to kill a pastor, give him undue exaltation. Because the reality is, he's simply a servant, an under rower, and he's simply a steward distributing the message of God. Second way you can kill a pastor is to give him unrealistic expectations. Consider him to be Superman. What's that in the sky? A bird? A plane? No, it's my pastor. He can leap tall buildings at a single bound. He can do it all. Give him unrealistic expectations. You know, we have job descriptions for our various pastoral staff members, and and when we go to add a staff member, we always look at the job description And one of the elders always comments, you know, it would really take two or three people to fill this job description. Or somebody might say, you know, we're really expecting Jesus to come back and, and fill this job description. And so we have to prioritize the duties because we don't want to give unrealistic expectations to our pastors. You see, when you lay unrealistic expectations on a pastor, he either kills himself trying to fulfill those, Or he has to fake it. He has to pretend like he's doing things he's really not doing. Kind of like the guys I heard about that were on the first tee tee box of the golf course. And one guy stood up there and he hooked his his drive and it went over and landed on the cart path, bounced over a fence, hit a bike trail, rolled onto the highway, hit the tire of a moving bus, 
and bounced back into the middle of the fairway. The other guys were amazed that he'd done that. And one guy spoke up and said, how'd you do that? And he said, well, you have to know the bus schedule. You know, I've hit a lot of duck hooks off the pulpit. It's kind of... And they hit a moving bus. And they end up in the middle of the fairway. And the temptation is to say, I know the bus schedule. But see, God's not calling me to know the bus schedule. God is really just calling me to do one thing. God has one primary expectation for me, and that expectation is in verse 2. He says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. That's a word that means faithful. A steward isn't called to be creative. He's called to be obedient. And the idea of being faithful is the person who works just as hard when the boss is looking over his shoulder as he does when the boss is on vacation. God is interested in faithfulness. Now it doesn't say it's required of stewards that they be found brilliant doesn't say it's required of stewards that they be found clever. doesn't say it's required of stewards that they be found innovative. No. It says it's required of stewards that they be found faithful. God is looking for people who will take his word without changing it and without adding to it and faithfully communicate it to his people. And that's all he wants. That's all he requires. You know, I think there are too many creative preachers today. And God is looking for faithful preachers. He wants men who will take his word and faithfully teach it. And we've got a lot of people today who don't. A lot of preachers who don't. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 4.2, Paul calls it adulterating the word of God. Giving people the word of God, but it's not pure and it's not in its simple form. It's been adulterated. It's been changed by that individual. In his commentary on 1 Corinthians, John MacArthur quotes a well-known pastor in a magazine interview. Here's what he said. It was at that point in my ministry that I decided the pulpit was no longer to be a teaching platform. The pulpit needs to be used as an instrument of spiritual therapy. It's a mistake to teach and preach. Don't preach sermons, create experiences. I don't have time to write a systematic theology which would give a solid theological basis for what I intuitively know, what I intuitively believe is right. In other words, I don't study God's word, I just say what I feel like is right. Begin with your heart, don't begin with your head. Every sermon has to begin with the heart. If you ever hear me preaching a sermon against adultery, you know what my problem is. If you ever hear me preach a sermon where I'm so enthusiastic about the coming of Jesus Christ, you know that's where I am heart-wise. It so happens I'm not hung up on either of those areas, so I've never preached a sermon on either one. 
I never begin messages by thinking I ought to go through the book of Romans. I could not in print or public deny the virgin birth of Christ or the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ or the return of Christ. But when I have something I can't comprehend, I just don't deal with it. Wow. That is to totally adulterate the word of God. Does the Bible have something to say about adultery? Does the Bible have something to say about the virgin birth of Jesus Christ? Does the Bible have something to say about Jesus' second coming? Well, to fail to deliver that to God's people is to be a poor steward. To be an unfaithful steward at best. 2 Corinthians 2.17 says, For we are not like many peddling the Word of God. What's it mean to peddle the Word of God? That's to take the Word of God and and, and teach it in such a way that it will sell. And there are preachers today that do that. I can tell you right up front. Hell and sin and judgment don't sell real well with people. So if you want to peddle the Word of God, what do you do? You kind of take those ideas out of the way. Instead, you talk about health and wealth and prosperity because that sells. Just have to go in the Christian bookstore and see what books are bestsellers. And you'll see that principle. But to selectively preach what people want to hear is not being faithful. And I would suggest to you that the person who does that is a huckster and not a steward. All God wants from his servants is that they be faithful. To simply do what he says, to distribute the mysteries of God, to proclaim the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 4.17, Timothy is called faithful. In 1 Corinthians 7.25, Paul is called faithful. In Ephesians 6.21, Tychicus is called faithful. In Colossians 1.7, Epaphras is called faithful. In Colossians 4.9, Onesimus is called faithful. In 1 Peter 5.12, Silvanus is called faithful. In Revelation 2.13, Antipas is called faithful. And one day in the not too distant future, Jesus is going to come back and he's going to say to some of his stewards, well done, thou good and faithful servant. John Payton was a young student in England and he felt God was calling him to the mission field but he didn't know exactly where. He was just graduating from seminary and he had just gotten married and as he was praying about where God would lead him to go he was impressed by an area called the New Hebrides Islands. Now the New Hebrides Islands were inhabited by man-eating cannibals and as God began to direct his heart there he didn't argue with God. Instead, he took his new bride and set off for the New Hebrides. Now, I might have said, well, God, you know, I just graduated from seminary. Why don't you get a Bible school dropout and send him, and if they eat him, nobody will notice. But he was, obe- he was faithful to God's calling, and he went. The boat let them off about 200 yards from the shore in a little dinghy, and they rowed to shore. Let me ask you this. What do you do when you go to an island, you don't know the language, 
and there are cannibals living there. I don't think you put up a sign that says Sunday school 915 or vacation Bible school starting Monday. They prayed a lot and they stayed awake a lot and they watched the natives and the natives watched them and several months went by living on the shore and nothing happened. And John Payton's wife gave birth to a little baby. Two weeks later, the baby contracted a tropical disease and died. And a day later, his wife died. And he buried them both by the little lean-to that he had built on the shore. And he said in his biography that he slept on the graves for three nights to keep the natives from digging up the graves and eating them. And then he said to God, just how far does obedience go, God? What do you want from me? But you know, then through the providence of God, a native outcast by the tribe found his way to John. Scared that the tribe was after him and began to communicate in little words and gradually John Payton learned enough to share the gospel with this native. How that God had a son who died for him. And over the course of a couple of weeks, that native trusted Christ. And that native brought another native to John Payton. And soon he had a little group of believers who would hide him from the tribe when they came to eat him. As God would have it, John Payton stayed on those islands for 35 years. And at the end of 35 years, he said in his biography, I do not know of one single native that has not made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. You see, that's what God can do with a faithful servant, with a faithful steward. And that's all he's looking for. So if you want to kill a pastor, put unrealistic expectations on him. Because God's simple expectation is that he be faithful. And then the third way to kill a pastor is give him unrelenting examination. Preachers live in a fishbowl. And I know that sometimes you guys have roast preacher for lunch. And I think Paul is responding to that in verses 3 to 5 because he points out three kinds of judgment. Three judges or three courts. And those three courts are, first of all, the court of public opinion. Notice verse 3. But to me it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. Paul says, you know what your examination of me means to me? Very little. And I think this is the real sign of maturity for a minister to be able to honestly say, I don't care what people think. Because the reality is, we all do. I mean, I have to be honest with you. I like it when you come up to me and say, that was a great message. You know, that was a zinger. Man, you must know the bus schedule. You know, that was wonderful. I enjoy it when you do that. But Paul knew that impressing people 
Winning the approval of people was not very important. Now notice, he doesn't say, I don't care at all. He says, I care very little. Because the reality is that you're not the judge that matters. And then there's a second court. And that's the court of personal private opinion. Notice the end of verse 3. He says, in fact, I do not even examine myself. And when you come up to me and give me compliments, sometimes I start listening to those. You come up and say, man, you were terrific. And I say, oh, nothing. You know, and then I walk away and go, you know, I think they're right. I, I really am terrific. Or if you don't give me any compliments, silence can be kind of troubling. And I, I kind of second guess myself. Am I really doing the right thing? Because nobody's, everybody's running from me. Nobody's saying anything to me. And, and so I have to be honest with you. Sometimes that affects me. But Paul says, I don't care what you think. And I don't care what I think. Why not? Because you're in no position to judge me. And I'm in no position to judge me. Look at verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. Paul says, I'm aware of no glaring sin. Everything in my life is the way it ought to be. There are no inconsistencies, but that's not the final word. That doesn't mean it's necessarily so. Now be careful here. This doesn't mean you should never examine yourself. Because later in this same book, Paul says you're to examine yourself on a regular basis. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 28, he says, but a man must examine himself. And there it's in the context of communion. He says when you come to the table of communion, you're to examine yourself and then eat. And then he says in that same passage in verse 31, but if we judged ourselves rightly we would not be judged. So it's a healthy thing to examine yourself, but you also have to realize that you are not the final judge. You see, I know myself better than anyone else, but the reality is that I really don't know myself. Jeremiah 17.9 says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can know it? And the implication is we can't know it. So I can't judge myself because if I, when I try to do that, I realize that I'm limited. And one of the common mistakes we make when we examine ourselves, when I judge ourselves, is that we compare ourselves with other people. That's the easiest way to do it. I just look around and see how you guys are doing and kind of see myself in that light and that's how I'll make my judgment. We're kind of like the little boy who decided to sell his puppy. Told his mom he didn't like his puppy, so he's going to sell him for $10,000. So he headed out to sell his puppy, and he came home and told his mom that he sold the puppy. She, with tongue in cheek, said, well, did you get what you paid? Or did you get what you were asking for? And he said, yeah. He said, uh, I traded it for two $5,000 cats. 
You know, I can be a $10,000 Christian as long as I'm just comparing myself with $5,000 cats. And that's the problem with judging myself. It's always limited. And then there's a third court. And that's the court of God. Look at the end of verse 4. But the one who examines me is the Lord. The only one who can judge me ultimately is the Lord. Not you, not me, just him. He's the one we serve. The Bible says, study to show thyself approved unto you. No. Study to show thyself approved unto thyself. No. Study to show thyself approved unto God. He's the only one who can evaluate me. He's the only one whose approval matters. And then notice verse 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. Stop judging. But wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. You see, this evaluation can only come from the Lord because it's not going to simply be based on external things. It's going to be based on internal things, the hidden things and the motives of the heart. You see, God is not simply interested in what we do. He's interested in why we do it. The question that God is going to evaluate one day is, why did you serve? Did you do it for fame? Did you do it for ego satisfaction? Did you do it to please others? Did you do it for money? Did you do it for prestige? Or did you do it because you love me and you want to glorify me? Those are the motives. I don't see anything in here about how big the church was, how many degrees were after his name, how popular he was. You see, it's all about your motives. And what will be the outcome? Look at the end of verse 5. And then, each man's praise will come to him from God. That's amazing. We talk about praising God. Look at this verse. It says, one day, God is going to praise us. Wow. Wow. A missionary was returning home after a lifetime on the mission field. When the ship came into the harbor, he saw a banner on the shore that said, Welcome home. Had a band playing. And for a brief moment he thought, Is that for me? And then he realized that Teddy Roosevelt was on the same ship. And this was all for Teddy Roosevelt. And so when he got off the ship, he realized not only did he not have a banner and a band, he didn't have anybody to greet him. So he got a little discouraged. And he asked God, why, Lord, did nobody welcome me home? And the Lord whispered in his heart, son, you're not home yet. Sometimes we look for applause on the earth. We look for a band to play for us. The reality is, that the only one whose approval we should care about is the one who's going to praise us one day when we get home. 
I like the way Paul expands this at the end of verse 5 because he's, he's really talking about preachers but when he gets to the end of verse 5 notice he says each man he expands it to everyone you see we're all ministers and we will all one day stand before the Lord let me share a poem with you it's called A Convenient Christian by Dickie Crow it goes like this Oh yes, I'm a Christian, have been all along. Just ask me and you'll see my faith is very strong, but I must tell you I'm a convenient Christian sitting on a shelf, a convenient Christian living for myself. I go to church when it's convenient for me, but there's usually some place else I'd rather be. Because you see, I'm a convenient Christian sitting on a shelf, a convenient Christian living for myself. You say there are things in church I need to be doing. Well, there are more important things that I'm pursuing. After all, I'm a convenient Christian sitting on a shelf. A convenient Christian living for myself. You ask me to serve and that's just fine, but can't you see, I really don't have time. I'm too busy being a convenient Christian sitting on a shelf. A convenient Christian living for myself. Do I read the Bible? Well, yes, once in a while. But it's really not for me. It doesn't fit my style. I'd rather be a convenient Christian sitting on a shelf. A convenient Christian living for myself. Do I support the church financially? Of course I do. Every time I go to church, I give a dollar. Sometimes two. But don't forget, I'm a convenient Christian sitting on a shelf. A convenient Christian living for myself. Talk to God? Well, that's very easy for you to say. I'm too busy, you know. I really don't have time to pray. Remember, I'm a convenient Christian sitting on a shelf. A convenient Christian living for myself. Tell my neighbor about Jesus? Oh, no, not me. That's what we pay the preacher for, you see. As always, I'm a convenient Christian sitting on a shelf. A convenient Christian living for myself. If that strikes a chord in your heart personally, then I would challenge you this morning to change the way you're living and change who you're serving. Because I would not want to stand before the Lord someday and use those kind of excuses for why I didn't serve Him. And so this morning, don't kill me. You're a minister, so I want you to ask yourself these three questions in closing. Am I a servant? Am I willing to be the under rower in the ship, the most menial task? And am I a steward of the mysteries of God? Am I protecting what he's entrusted to me? And am I distributing it to other people? And then am I faithful? Am I faithful? Am I obedient? Am I doing what my master is telling me to do? And thirdly, am I ready to answer to my master? Am I ready to have the motives of my heart laid bare before him one day to see not only what I did, but why I did it? I'm going to ask in closing, John and Lindsay, you still here? I want you to come back up here and sing that song for us again.
And I'm going to ask us to stand, as they do. If you, if you know the song, if you know the words, you can sing along. But I think this wor- this, the words to the song really speak to what we've talked about this morning. And so I want you to reflect on what God is saying to you this morning as you're reflecting on the fact that he's the ultimate judge. And let him shine his light in your heart this morning. If you want to respond, if you want someone to pray with you, you can come forward this morning. If you'd like to join the church this morning, you come as well. Let's really reflect as we listen to the words of this song. And again, if you know the words, sing along.